0: This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka, that is me. I'm delighted to have on the other side of the internet talking to me, Zeynep Tufekci. Um, there are many ways to describe what Zeynep does. I'm gonna give you a couple of them. Uh, this is from the New York Times, Ben Smith's profile recently. Dr. Tufekci is an associate professor at the University of North Carolina's School of Information and Library Science with no obvious qualifications in epidemiology. Then later he goes on to describe her as perhaps the only good amateur epidemiologist. Uh, she describes herself as someone who studies techno-sociology and then goes on to describe her interest as society, authoritarianism, technology, protest, the public sphere. I think of her as one of the brainiest people I follow on the internet, and so I'm delighted to have her here. How about that long intro to
1: <laughs> Thank you for all of that. It's um, an interesting introduction. Well, I'm flattered. Thank you.
0: <laughs> Thank you for coming. So we, before we started formally recording this, uh, Zainab was explaining to me her frustration with, and this is timely, the way polls and probability are being uh, reported and and presented to the public uh, in the run-up of the election. And so I, I thought it'd be good to sort of capture some of that for the record here. People have been complaining for a long time about the way people report about polls and leads and in the past they'd say well this this poll was inaccurate we heard a lot about it after 2016 there's a lot of frustration with the needle the new york times was presented uh you you were specifically talking to me just now about about your frustration with the probability percentages that we will see in the new york times or on 538. can you just set that up for us
1: sure um so let me just start by saying that modeling is a better way to try to understand the odds of what's going on than the polls themselves, because electoral college is an amalgamation of many, many things. The national poll doesn't mean much. So uh, my problem isn't that models are like, we should abandon them and go back to what we had. My problem is there is, um, they're not as useful, I think as people think. And sometimes I hear it compared to something like a weather model where um, for example, right now, um, usually the odds of Trump winning are portrayed as something like 2080, which means if you had, you know, 100 election runs, 20% of the time Trump would win, and 80% of the time uh, that um, Biden would win. Now. In weather, when you say something like that, that's really useful because what you're saying is, when things look like this, 20 percent of the time it rained. If there's 20 percent chance of rain, and 80 percent of the time it did not, so that uh, and people
0: and, and people understand that intuitively. People,
1: I think we've gotten used to understanding it, but the models, um, all models have sources of error and uncertainty, but for weather, we have constant opportunity to fine tune it. We understand uh, it's a, in a mix of things, right? We understand laws of physics and, you know, chemistry and all those things that go into weather. Plus we have, you know, model after model and prediction after prediction, and we fine tune it. So as we go along, we uh, both are understanding of the underlying science, And the fact that we do these runs and see if they're correct or not, and we fine tune it, means that the models get more reliable over time.
0: And people, whether they'd realize it or not, realize that a model for next week's weather, is it less good than next hour's weather? They get that as well.
1: Yeah, we get that as well. The problem with the presidential modeling, there's like a couple of problems. One of them is that unlike something like weather, uh, we have maybe 14 or 15 modern elections, presidential elections. That we're using as the basis of the model so it's not like weather like even hurricanes we have hundreds and hundreds of hurricanes we've used and fine tune our hurricane models as they're complicated events but we don't have one two three four fifteen we have hundreds maybe thousands so one problem is there are two very few underlying examples the second problem is the underlying examples are happening in a rapidly changing terrain in that You know, in 2016, 2020, we have say social media, Facebook playing a major role. In 2020, we have a complete like novel thing, which is we're under a pandemic. In 19, say um, 80, we didn't have any of these, right? So, to what degree does past models or past elections give us an accurate sense of the dynamics? I mean, there's no doubt there's some. Thing to what happened in the past, if the economy was terrible or not. But unlike weather, it's kind of like you're in a, the, the laws of physics are changing in your modeling, something like that. So the third problem is that unlike weather models, if I go out with an umbrella, it doesn't affect the chance of rain, right? The rain doesn't rain just to spite me if I didn't take umbrellas uh, or an umbrella. It, it may feel like that, you know, you don't take your umbrella and you're like, oh, it's the, it's raining now. But with election modeling, the model the information that people think they're getting from the model informs their own actions, which mm-hmm. then changes the result. So in 2016, that was really striking because um, there were so many players uh, that acted in a particular way, thinking Hillary Clinton was pretty much guaranteed to win and contributed to her loss. So you can count uh, FBI Director Comey, who's on the record saying he thought Clinton would win, and that was part of his uh, thinking and that his actions didn't matter in the way he did. The social media platforms, it's been reported that they were pretty certain that Clinton was going to win, and that made them reluctant to upset Uh, conservatives or Republicans with the sort of the misinformation side. We have um, reporting that the Obama White House did not want to make a big deal out of the Russian role in whatever misinformation Mm -hmm. was being injected because it seemed like a scandal that they could avoid if Clinton was going to win anyway.
0: And this concern about what data does when you sort of expose it to the world and the Schrödinger's cat problem, right? That, that's a longstanding thing, right? That's why mm-hmm. the, uh, why we don't actually announce or why the, why the networks don't call the election before a certain time um, because they don't want to disenfranchise voters. It's a theory. Of course, if you're in California, it doesn't matter. But is your main critique of, of this stuff the accuracy of the data or the way the data is presented, right? Because it's going to get presented no matter what. People are going to try to estimate what's going to happen. You can't stop that. So, what would you what would you like a five thirty eight, a New York Times, to do as they're collecting the stuff and as they're presenting it?
1: So, I think between two thousand sixteen and two thousand twenty, we have improvements in presentation for sure. Uh, in two thousand sixteen, we had like a, a digit after the decimal point you know, nine, 78.2 versus uh, whatever, 27.8. It was just sort of this sense of accuracy that just shouldn't be there. And it was presented in a visual way that just dominated people's sense of what was happening rather than sort of these are the odds of something happening. And those, so I think this presentation has improved. But all that said, um, given the uncertainty from lack of previous examples, changing terrain, a pandemic, the model isn't giving you that much information when it says it's 20% compared to for odds of Trump versus 40%, which 40% is equal to even, right? I'm not really saying, like, if I had to make a bet, I would also bet the way the model is betting, but that's not a reasonable way to think about the world, right? This is the world is not a bet. Uh, you, what you're thinking is like, do we have some certainty? Do we have some assumption? Do we have reasonable assumption to assume this is what's going to happen, that we can act as if it's going to happen most of the time? And I think you're not really getting that information. So it's just best to be honest. I think it's best to maybe you can't avoid the modeling, but it's best to contextualize it by saying, you know what, this model has a lot of uncertainty that's not even reflected in any of the polling error we mm-hmm. can actually measure. And it's not giving you the weather. It's not telling you the odds of something with the kind of, and even weather, like there's, of course, it's not a certainty. It's a probability model. But you have, a you're on sounder sort of ground there. And here you're not. And I, I just feel like I lost too many people last time around and this time around maybe less because of the experience, see these as a form of like science in the sense when we understand underlying mechanisms better, like weather, rather than we don't really understand how things happen and why people vote. And we're in the middle of a really unprecedented situation. So we don't actually really know Uh, And that's kind of so. Instead
0: instead of the dial, it should just be a a shoulder shrug emoji. I mean, there is there is a direct line, right, between you said it's not a bet, but between uh, the data journalism we have today and and sports betting, right? This the sabermetrics, and and Nate Cohen was a baseball writer, and 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 if you are watching an NFL game and you click over the right thing on an ESPN, it'll tell you minute to minute what percentage chance your team has of winning, and no one gets fundamentally upset if things change, they realize that things change. And also, and you betting doesn't change the odds.
1: Yeah. That's an important thing because, um, I mean, I understand a lot of people who are doing election modeling are also doing sports modeling. And I mean, I understand why sports modeling is interesting and fun. And, um, I even understand, you know, people, you can bet and you can sort of enjoy it. And as an area of recreation like that, I think that's fine but i think bringing that same mindset to politics is not that good because of the way it impacts the way we think about politics it also um help, i mean I, when the models came out i thought they would help kill some of the horse race journalism because if the model said you know the model says this and let's not really focus on the horse race part of it but in fact and i was wrong about that in fact what has happened is that it just feeds into the horse race thing with everybody arguing about the polls and if there's an outlier poll and if it's 20% and 15%. And I'm kind of like, it's not giving you as much information as you think it's giving you. And it's just like, let's leave that to betting and sports and other things where it's fun rather than to elections where it is what you make of it more than it is the prediction.
0: I brought this up at the beginning of our conversation one get this timely because it's, it's the election it's happening and also because it's a good illustration of what makes you an interesting person to read and and to talk to you are I give you that long that long introduction but another way of describing you is a polymath Um, You know, you've got a background in in computer science, but you also study uh, sociology. Uh, You came on my radar, I think, like a lot of other people at the beginning of the the pandemic, because you were writing with great authority about what was happening in China and what was going to be happening in the US. And there's a lot of like, who is this person? And now you're confidently talking to me about uh, election odds. Well, How do you describe what you do?
1: That's a good question um, <laughs> uh, because it's very funny that you think of me primarily as a, um, like a epidemiology person. Because what I actually normally do is technology and society mm-hmm. for most of my academic career. I just stepped into the pandemic because there was a gap that could uh, that I thought I could help, but not uh, if I didn't, you know, start writing about it. So I did. So. What I try to do, I think, it's a bunch of things, but one of them is uh, what you described as sort of having multiple disciplines. That can be dangerous. Like you can just become a contrarian for the sake of contrarian. and You can kind of be superficial in many of them. But I think a lot of real interesting questions are at the intersections of these disciplines. Right. So for technology, uh, what matters is not just the technical features of the you know, underlying technology, but they matter too, right? If you don't understand how machine learning works, you can't make sense of what recommendation algorithms are doing and why. Like you'll have the wrong diagnosis of what's happening with recommendation algorithms if you don't have some understanding of the technical side of the machine learning. But you also have to understand the business model because that's why the algorithm is optimizing what it's doing and the data sources and all of that. So what I think I try to do is I try to do this complex systems thinking across disciplines where the questions really are rather than siloing myself in the discipline, which I think is not where the questions are. You know, if you want your keys, you gotta look for them where they are, not where the light is. And the um, academic setting tends to be siloed. And I have to say corporations tend to be siloed too. I, I mean, I worked in corporate settings before in that there's a lot of specialization and there's value in specialization, right? Because if somebody is not producing say, the aerosol engineering, the papers I read, To write about, say, ventilation or with about masks, I can't really do what I do. Uh, So, like, it's not like I don't value the specialization. In fact, I depend on it. But what I try to then do is to bring it together across disciplines and say, okay, you know, if that's how we're talking about technology, if this is how machine learning works, this is what we're optimizing for. Uh, and this is the business model. And this is what human information seeking looks like. This is why novelty is interesting. This is how it works. You can kind of put it all together and say, okay, this is what's going on. With the pathogen, you have the same thing. You have characteristics of the virus that matter, that it has asymptomatic and presymptomatic transmission, that fever and infectiousness are not... Uh, at the same time necessarily, that it's over dispersed and clustered, uh, that it's aerosolized when we speak or breathe. Like all of those technical things come together with questions of stigma. Can you only have sick people wear masks? No, because that's not how human societies operate. You get stigma. Uh, Will it lead to false sense of security? No, because research shows that it does not. So you see the sociology, the psychology, and the virus, the particulars of the virus, because these things are not like uniformly true, whatever the virus. So
0: I think you answered my question. Um, I'm following, but and I'd heard of you prior to, to this spring, to last spring, but um, I certainly wasn't reading you consistently. And all of a sudden you sort of popped up uh, at a time when we were desperately seeking information. We knew we couldn't rely on President Trump for it. We thought we could rely on the CDC and the World Health Organization. Turns out we were wrong about that. You know, you'd see you'd see stories like some were published in Vox and Recode where people uh, would go interview a public health expert uh, and you'd get one conclusion. And then there were a whole bunch of people on the internet <laughs> who were saying, no, no, that's wrong. This is right. You were one right. of those voices, but they weren't all consistent, right? There were a right. lot of people saying, this is overblown. There were, you know, and then we right. continued to have sort of like a of, of folks who, who don't have formal qualifications, opining with confidence about what was happening. I know. I Did know. you have reservations about doing that because you don't have a formal background in epidemiology and public health?
1: Oh my gosh, yes. Absolutely. I mean in fact, uh, I started writing my first post on the pandemic is end of February where I wrote a post on how to get ready and why to get ready. I mean it wasn't I wasn't completely new to pandemics. I used to teach sociology of pandemics in my introduction to sociology class because they're so good for explaining complex topics like networks and connectedness and hubs and super spreading and human institutions, right? So it's very good for explaining all of that. So I And of course, what's more interesting than viruses, right? They're um, bad news wrapped in a protein. They're very interesting. So I knew some stuff, but I like didn't think it was my place to say anything. I just was tweeting about some stuff, but I wasn't. But at the end of February, I was having this really weird experience in which I was certain we were going to get hit. I mean, by then it was so obvious, like February, all of February, it was completely obvious. We were going to get hit. Uh, we were seeing the case fatality rates. We knew it was going to hit the elderly. We knew lots of things. We had seen Wuhan. Uh, there was Lombardy. But everybody here was acting like like it was, some, it was happening on another planet. It was
0: like, an ocean away.
1: Yeah, it was an ocean away. And people were just like in my local sort of social circles or Facebook groups, people were asking, should we worry about this? Should we do anything? And people were reassuring each other, sending each other these, you know, articles from Times and Washington Post and basically saying, don't worry about it. You know, don't panic. This is, uh, don't be alarmed.
0: Get your flu shot. Be concerned about the flu.
1: Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, exactly. And in fact, what was happening is that people were conflating alarmism with genuine alarm. When you need to be alarmed, yeah. that's not alarmist. So I got very frustrated. So I wrote an article for the Scientific American because I owed them a post. So I was like, here you go, uh, saying, this is coming. We got to get ready. Here's how you get ready. Um, all the things that in retrospect are super obvious. I told people, you got to get ready for remote work. You got to get your you know, elderly people squared away. You got to figure out deliveries. If you have prescriptions, fill them out. Um, of course, yeah. I'll do get your flu shot. You know, there's, that's completely sensible. But don't just. And you're going to have to stay home for a while because we have to flatten the curve. So I did all of that, and then uh, what happened was once I wrote the article, it went really viral because people were looking for a practical article that gave them both a reason and a sort of a justification that getting ready wasn't just for the preppers who had bunkers Mm -hmm. in Montana. It was kind of being ridiculed like that. And that there were things they could and should do because the virus is not something that exists outside our response. So I thought, all right, I'm done. You know, I, I did a good thing. I wrote the article because I wanted to actually have an article to send to people. Right. And you you fulfilled
0: more. your professional obligation and you did some good at the same
1: yeah, time. I, yeah, Yeah. I, I, exactly, because I needed this. So I said, all right, we're done. One of the things that happened, though, is that in the article, I had linked to a list of things to potentially get. And it was from a prepper site because at the time, the only people giving you reasonable lists were prepper sites. That they, everybody else was saying, you know, get a flu shot and live your life. And the list included masks. Now, in my own article at the end of February, I had kind of said, you know, there's already no masks. Don't worry about it. There's not much to do right now. But I had actually followed the news and I'd bought my own, like just a small supply of masks on January 7th. Like, because to me, Because the news was coming out, like if you follow anything about pandemics and you hear viral pneumonia out of Wuhan, you're like, all right, order the masks, order the hand sanitizers. It wasn't like that. But it was already sold out. So I didn't even make a big deal out of it in my original article. But I immediately got this pushback from public health people, not just Trump Mm -hmm. administration, like public health people on social media, all sorts of people with the right PhDs and MDs who got mad at me saying, You can't tell people to get masks because masks are potentially harmful. I was like, what? Like, how are I I, at that point? Like, I understood. All right. We're kind of out of it. And let's see what we need to do. But I just couldn't wrap my head around what I was hearing, that they were potentially harmful to the wearer. And I said, what, what am I missing here? Like, what, what is, I, So I try to dig in to understand because, of course, I also did a lot of research in Hong Kong all of last year uh, with their social movement. So I had some connection to, and to, their, you know, that, to the place. And in Hong Kong, in South Korea, in Japan, in Taiwan, all the places with the effective response that had been through SARS, it all messed up. And they have very good epidemiologists and Mm -hmm. infectious disease specialists there. So I'm kind of like, somebody's wrong here. And somebody needs to explain to me first, like, how on earth could they be harmful? Like, let's leave aside the second question, which is, will they help? But let's sort of get through the harm part. And the things I heard were mind-blowing. Like, I was hearing things like, um, what if the outside of your mask is contaminated? Yeah, yeah. And I was Donald like, Trump
0: still likes to re- use this one.
1: And I I I was like that sounds excellent because that's like the mask working because if the outside of my mask is being contaminated because there's a mask, like at the outside of the mask that means that it's not my nose or my mouth that's breathing it like outside of your mask being contaminated is a sign of success not harm. So I was just kind of like, what's the scenario? Like the outside of your mask is contaminated. You sort of rub your hand on it and then you take off the mask and then you breathe it in from your finger. That sounds like a, like a lower odds thing than me directly breathing. It was like, okay, this is nonsense. Like I don't buy this. So that didn't work. The second argument people gave me was that it'll create a false sense of security that people will believe that They're safer than they actually are. Then all
0: you have to do is do the mask and then you're you're magically immune.
1: Right. So that, of course, made no sense because the sociological research on all of that, that did not make sense. And knowing everything I know about how people behave, I said it's going to be the opposite. People are going to feel wary because the mask is going to signal something's wrong here and they're going to actually be more cautious, which has since been validated with actual studies. So I had all these, like, I want- And there was an argument things.
0: that you'll cause a run on masks and we don't have right. enough so
1: masks. I'll get to that one last. So the, and I went through all the other things about how it wouldn't help. And none of that made sense to because it's a respiratory illness, right? I mean, there's no question that were expelling these things. And at the time, the World Health Organization and the CDC were saying, do wear a mask if you're sick in order not to yep. affect other people. And we had, you know, by the end of February, we had tons of papers showing that people with mild or no symptoms were transmitting. So how are you supposed to know if you're sick? Plus, people who were wearing masks were getting attacked. Asian-Americans they were getting attacked. So if you just said people who are sick should wear masks, it was just impossible because they would be. So none of that made sense. But let me sort of tell you. So I didn't want to write a piece on masks. I said, this doesn't make sense. And I started tweeting these arguments. Mm-hmm. Like on March 1st, I have like a Twitter thread, I think uh, probably March 1st, right after my Scientific American articles, giving these arguments and saying, this doesn't make sense. Plus I said, I think we're going to pay for this because this is a terrible argument to make to the public because we do, we're facing a pandemic and a deadly pathogen. And then I waited, hoping that I would either get scooped by somebody who said, wait, this looks like a good article to write, but had the right credentials Mm -hmm. and authority, like a former head of CDC or FDA or somebody who would come and write something saying the CDC and the World Health Organization are wrong, because that's a really big thing to say. And as you say, as someone without the credentials, one, there's the danger that, you know, you just are seen as a contrarian. Worse, you could be classified like an anti-vaxxer, somebody defying medical authority in the middle of a pandemic. So I waited two weeks I waited two weeks after sort of being pretty convinced myself that this made no sense and that this was going to backfire. And in those two weeks, still sort of having some of these back and forth arguments on social media, I realized the thing you said, the shortage, was really helping drive some of these arguments in that people had talked themselves into this groupthink situation. The public health Uh, community and medical doctors included. I mean, obviously not all of them, but a great many of them, because partly somehow driven by this fear that if masks were recommended, it would cause a run on what little Uh supply existed. Now, that really rubbed me the wrong way, because it's a pandemic, and the public has much at stake right? They're not toddlers to be managed. They are partners and they are responsible for, like we're all responsible for one another. So if there's a mask shortage, but masks are necessary, the only responsible thing is to say, look, we screwed up. We should have gotten ready, but we didn't. But here we are. But obviously healthcare workers need you know the N95s and the surgical masks a lot more because they're facing the pathogen and infection every day. So please don't buy if you see any. And if you have any stock, please donate. But in the meantime, we're going to wear cloth masks, right? That was the only thing we could, should have done. Because if you don't treat the public as a trusted partner, then they don't trust you back, right? There's no So that's how I I said, all right, I'm going to write this because that's what I thought was uh going wrong is that not only was the science being misrepresented not only were we going to pay for it later with which we are i thought this just doesn't trust the public and that's not okay
0: we're going to take a quick break to hear from a sponsor and be right back with Zainab. and now we're back this is one of the striking things i i find about your you and your work is you're speaking with great authority now and it's much easier to do that because it's past tense but you were speaking with great authority then at the time and i remember late February, early March, at the time when you said it was crystal clear to you, it was clear to you in February what was gonna happen. But I was reasonably following the news. I listened to Don McNeil Jr. on the, on the daily, and it certainly seemed like there was a concern. But it also seemed like it could be managed. And I certainly had absorbed the information that masks sh- weren't necessary, but maybe you'd spray down. I remember I flew on March fifth, and people were, were were wiping down surfaces, but they wore a mask too next to me, and I was eye rolling because it seemed, it seemed there was to me, it seemed a reasonable person could be quite confused about what was going on because it was a it still is. A novel virus, right? We didn't mm-hmm. know what was happening. You would get lots of different conflicting information about the best way to handle it. What about how much should you be should you be bleaching your vegetables? Should you be wiping right. down doorknobs? The pandemic's the best version of this, where you 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 say, "I know exactly what's going on. I'm going to explain it to you." But it seems like you speak that way all the time, and and I love <laughs> it. I, it's great. Um, I'm wondering if you ever get to a point where you go, "Look, I, look, I'm smart and I've read a lot of stuff, but I am not an expert on this. I'm going to." Let someone else write about this thing, even though I've got a very, very good hunch that I'm right here.
1: Not only that, of course. Like, I mean, I normally stay and write about things that are more within my regular wheelhouse. I got into pandemic writing out of a sense of obligation. And this part is true. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I think I do good work and I do a lot of work. Right. So if I were like, I mean, since then I've written about ventilation, I've written about, you know, clustering and overdispersion, and I'm not a journalist. I'm an academic. Right. So I never have to write something unless I want to write something. Right. So this is not this is a big thing that is freeing for me. And if I want to read 100 papers to write an article on ventilation, I do. Like, I do sit down and put in an enormous amount of work that is not always available time-wise to a journalist, especially like a freelancer or someone who's not on staff, and even someone on staff if they're writing a piece a day. And plus, journalists still are under this ethic where they're supposed to ask a bunch of experts yep, and then put it back. And well, it doesn't work in a pandemic because, one, the experts aren't agreeing, there's no way – to come to a sensible conclusion, or there's no way to come to a conclusion, let me say, uh, without using a judgment on which experts you think are right and why, right? So you can't be divorced from evaluating the science of it and write about it in a way that makes sense. Because I know a lot of people, like journalists, they'll email like 10 experts and they'll just Take the first four that get back to them. Yep. Well, those the first four are probably the ones that did a cursory reading. Like that's the last thing you should do. What you need to do is like, one, you need to find, of course, of course you need to ask experts. I do too. I constantly talk to them, um, like the, the domain experts. But you also have to say, okay, like this person is usually good but they take time to read it carefully. <clears throat> so you can't do it in a very right. sort of... And, and, way.
0: and or maybe they don't want to give me the quote that I need because I need a quote. Right. That's a whole other right. problem. So
1: Exactly. So what I started doing was because it's a pandemic, I started like doing... A lo- I just started doing these deep dives where I would read the papers and I would read and read and read the papers and then I would go to these people and I would, to the best of my ability, to pick what I thought were the strongest proponents of differing views. And I'd be like, so what do you think? And how about this? And it wasn't like a, I just asked questions and they told me stuff, I would like challenge them. And I would say, well, you're saying that, but well, what about that and what about this? And they would just sort of have a counter argument and I would go read the paper and I would sometimes email them back and say, what about this, what about that? So I didn't really like, just like, I of course respect their expertise. But again, they're not agreeing with each other. So I don't, I can't really take any one of them as the final word. I have to put my own judgment into it, which means that I also have to read the papers. And I also have to read the statistics of what's going on. I have to have a sense of which experts have a track record and where they're coming from. And now it's still dangerous territory, right? We have a piece, (laughs) I'm laughing about it, but uh, we have... Like cases like a piece in PNAS, which is a top scientific journal, uh, that was contributed by because PNAS has a special contribution track by a Nobel laureate in chemistry, and it's supposedly a piece showing masks work. Mm -hmm. So I'm supposed to be sympathetic to it, I guess, but it's junk because, like, he's measuring uh, the infection days and rates with uh, when mask mandates came, but he doesn't have like a lag between the mask mandate and the cases, but like people don't get infected and drop dead, right? There's an incubation period and like many weeks. So it's such a basic point. Like you can't just start masks working on day one. Like even if they work, it should take a couple of weeks for you to observe cases, but he doesn't. He just starts it on day one. Like it's the kind of thing if an undergrad in epidemiology made that mistake, you'd be like, what are you doing? And you send them back to retake the exam. And this guy's a Nobel laureate and he published this. So the fact that like when you are not, and he's chemistry Nobel laureate. So it's kind of like this big danger that someone like me or him, who's not in Mm -hmm. the field will make huge mistakes. Or you got a Scott
0: Atlas, right? Who doesn't have a background.
1: Right, but you also saw, like this doesn't mean the experts are just necessarily always, right? Because we also saw that place in which they like, you. there was in Western societies, to be honest, there's uniformly, there was a consensus that was more or less wrong. And it was some outsiders like me, that pushed it. Like some of the people that I work with were doctors and epidemiologists and virologists, but some of the people I work with on this were people like Jeremy Howard, who's a data scientist and not a virologist or epidemiologist either. So there's a weird position in which, like, I would never advocate just listen to anyone if they're outside the field. But on the other hand, we do have cases where and this is like painful to say but it's true the CDC and the World Health Organization were lagging and like it took them I wrote an article on ventilation and airborne transmission like a 5000 word article uh in July and CDC updated its guidelines what last week in October like and there's nothing there's no additional science between then and now yep. I think the science of The fact that there's some airborne transmission happening has been pretty solid since June, July uh, at the latest, but there's a lag. So it's a very weird position to be in. What ideally will happen is that we'll get through this pandemic and then we'll make the CDC and the WHO work so that people like me have no chance I keep telling everyone I have a very good track record in this pandemic. I wrote about ventilation, I wrote about parks, beaches, masks. So it looks like I did great but like I don't want ever to be in this position because like what should happen is that somebody like me should have zero chance. Of outpacing the, you know, public health authorities.
0: What did it feel like to you this spring and this summer, as people <laughs> sort of were increasingly relying on you for information in the absence, again, of good government information, uh, good information from from actual doctors and epidemiologists? Do you ever feel like well, t- saying, "Look, I, I this is not uh, what I, I should I'm, be doing"? I'm, I guess keep I keep asking I, the same question.
1: It's well, I mean, it's what it's done for me so far is it's made me, you know, just do a lot of work to try to make sure that if I did write something, I did not get it wrong. Uh, it made me feel responsible, but also terrified because, you know, when I thought, okay, I wrote, like in April, I wrote something saying, look, you can't just keep closing parks. What we know about human behavior is that you can't stop people from socializing for 18 months because that's what we are facing then. And we're a little more into it, but, you know, we're probably going, looking at next spring, summer, Mm -hmm. before we quasi-normalize, depending on how the vaccine things go. So, and it's pretty clear early on in April that the transmission was overwhelmingly indoors. And there's science behind that, right? UV sunlight inactivates viruses, it dilutes. We have it from previous pandemics. We had open-air hospitals in the Spanish flu. So... But if also if you just sort of close the beaches, you're gonna or parks, you're gonna have people congregate indoors. So I wrote that, and then it was like months of just more of beach closings and uh, park closings and people sort of actually you know getting infected indoors. And then I thought this is crazy because the transmission mechanism is not being communicated properly in February. Yes. You know, I didn't know what was going on. Is it fomites? Should we bleach our vegetables or car? Well, not the vegetables, but it's not foodborne, Mm -hmm. but like, what's the risk from cardboard? What should we do? Like, so there was a reason in February to shut everything down and go, let's, Try to figure this out. Do you have empathy
0: for for well-meaning public health officials or administrators? I'm thinking of the people at my kids' school who won't let him play, touch the ball when he plays kickball, right? who are trying to do well, they either may not be experts, even if they are experts, they, they are trying to air, what's 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 the cliche we hear over and over and over an abundance of caution. They're saying, look, it's probably wrong. But if we can save this many lives by not letting people bump into each other playing basketball, that's probably better off. And, and, and we're going to err on the side of, of too much. Right, um, so, or, or, or at least giving people instructions they can figure out. The virus can probably transmit somewhere between more than six feet. But six feet is kind of an understandable number. We can give them that. And uh, In the real world, this is how we're going to muddle through it.
1: So um, two things there. One of them is. Of course I have sympathy but I have a limit to my sympathy because there are downsides to everything right if you send people off the parks and they go inside there's a downside to it so uh in February it makes sense to overreact in the sense that there's an unknown like what if this was like polio right we would lock the kids home. Of course we would, right? Because missing school, all those things are in the trade-off, like compared to say polio. Yeah, you lock them home for the summer, which is what a lot of people used to do before we understood and before we had the vaccine uh, for that. But as we understand, we have to take the trade-offs into account, right? And one of the things is that if you don't give people the correct intuition for the transmission method, and you just freak them out, what you will get is fatigue and loss of credibility, right? So instead of doing the right thing, but well, they'll spend a month or two trying to do everything and then stop. Because like, this is not some hard to understand thing. You cannot live on seven alarm fire mode, especially if it becomes clearer, like, there's not a lot of transmission outdoors, right? At some point, yep. you have to kind of, uh, and then you lose trust, like because then people are like, they've been freaking me out about this and that, and now they're telling me, you know, not to go have a indoor wedding. You've lost credibility, but in that particular case, yeah, please do not have an indoor wedding, right? That is dangerous at this point. What do you and think about what a, a
0: What do you think about a rose garden event to to bring in a I new think Supreme the, Court the justice? Thing,
1: the thing that is important there is that I think the transmission likely occurred indoors. Like, yes. of course it's possible. Like this might be our first outdoor super spreader event, but it would be, as far as I know from epidemiology, it would be the very first.
0: Right. And we know and they were indoors and we, and know, we know they, they did they debate prep indoors, for 10 hours. And... The
1: people that got like, uh, there was a, um, there's some like breadcrumbs to the puzzle. For example, um, Tom Tillis, who's the Senator in North Carolina, he got infected, too. And people said, look, he was wearing masks, so this proves masks don't work, although masks aren't supposed to necessarily prevent, but prevent transmission. That said, he came out and said, I went indoors and took off my mask. Mm-hmm. So it's quite likely that he got infected Indoors right. when he took off his mask rather than outdoors. So uh but again, it's like looking for your keys under the light. All the articles about it um have the outdoor picture because that's what we have.
0: Right. There's but, a there's some indoor pictures too, but yeah, it's that's the picture they go to, there, and it's easier for people to a, understand.
1: There's a single indoor picture that I've seen, or maybe two, and they're partial. Yeah, right. They're small crowds. The Rose Garden one looks really better. And um, so it's kind of like just everybody going for beach pictures. It's just lazy. Yeah, I, was, I, I wasn't going to even
0: ask you about that just to get yeah, you... because it's just I know you'd go for ten minutes on that. Yeah. You wrote a piece last spring that was in large part media criticism again about about my colleagues and, and people at other outlets and and the work they had done in the in the beginning of the pandemic. But the bigger idea you were saying, people don't. Or this is an example of widespread, a systemic thinking. Yeah. Um, and this is a big idea that I think is very interesting. Can you explain what what? Systemic and asystemic thinking, and, and right. how a regular person should think about this,
1: right? So, uh, I just want to say that I write these criticisms because I'm really a genuine optimist, like I and in fact, I name people because otherwise it just feels very vague. Like, there's a tradition in media that we don't really name people, like, there's a lot of people say and mm-hmm. that we go after it, and I think that makes for lazy thinking, right? And so, I try to name some examples, not because I have it in for them, because I think that makes for better thinking where you're just putting something, you're just putting a marker down and saying, I think this is wrong. And in fact, I would really like a media world in which we do that more often outside the current hostility where there's a genuine, like, I think this is wrong with names Mm -hmm. so that we get better at it. And, you know, I would genuinely not minded if somebody had something like that about my article and I, I would read it carefully. I would, I'm not saying I'm going to love it if I'm wrong, but I would take it into account and maybe I am wrong, right? That's at least what I hope I would do. Uh, So the thing I thought about following the sort of February, which led me to really weird out of body experience is that I think there was An understandable suspicion of, and it's quite justified, of the Trump administration's failings. But to see everything through that lens. So if he is, you know, talking about travel bans, then travel bans must not work. And it must, like, all these things must just all be xenophobia. So we must just focus on not being racist rather than thinking in a different way, in which way we're facing a pandemic and forget being racist, Chinese scientists and whistleblowers have been trying to warn us, right? And um, and I do think like when Trump says the World Health Organization and the Chinese government are culpable, I think Chinese government initially, yeah, they, you know, their local government suppressed it. And that's true. Like just because he said it doesn't make it automatically wrong, yep. although it could also be that he is saying in a racist and xenophobic context, right? That That's possible. Yes. You can be possible. racist and correct. Or, not, or on the right track, right? You yeah. can be racist and on saying something that the opposite of which is not true. Like it's a little complicated like that. So when I wrote that piece, I saw, you know what, we have to do this better. We have to understand, for example, one of the things I was really missing from media in uh, February January of 2020 was a distinction between alarmism over rare events that don't always happen. like um, stranger danger child kidnappings. Yep. We freak out. And I of course we freak out. No parent wouldn't freak out at the idea, but in reality they're really rare, like they're so rare that that's, it's not that's the why they're in of- news. Right, and it's not the kind of thing that in most places in the world, including I would say all of the United States, it's not something like beyond just very broad things, you don't really need to think about it in your day-to-day life. So those are things that are, um, they're just so rare, statistically speaking. It's like getting on a plane and thinking about the crash. Like if it's a commercial plane, You can just assume it's not going to crash. You're fine. I understand. Right. And when a commercial
0: plane crashes, it's a big news story and it freaks people out. Correct. Um, And it's very hard to say. You should don't worry about getting on this plane, even though the last one crashed.
1: Right. So that's one thing. The second thing, though, there is pandemics are regular reoccurring dangers. They're like tsunami if you're in an earthquake zone right? So they are not frequent. But if there's chance of one happening, the alarm is warranted, right? So what happened is I think that there's an environment in which a lot of media try to scare us about stuff, which is unfair. Like, that's not good. Like, yesterday, I was really fuming. There's a Washington Post headline says, a participant in coronavirus yes. vaccine trial dies. Like, drove me up the wall because, one, Like that's an irresponsible headline. Two, in this particular case, the uh, deceased person wasn't even in the vaccinated group, was in the placebo group. Three, well, people die. Like you don't know if it was the vaccine or if they just died or do you need some real context to this? And four, even if vaccines cause some rare side effects, which they do. Right. I, I think we have to be honest about it. Like they're not like without any side effects. They're kind of the side effects are often like planes crashing in that they're so rare that the benefit of the vaccine greatly overweighs any consideration of that. Would rare you, side would you effect. have
0: not reported that story if you were the assignment editor for The Washington I Post? I would
1: not reported that story now, because the reason is that you have to wait for the trial to end. And if you're going to report that study, like, it has to be really properly contextualized. Like, you have to first understand, like, you have to have really high level of evidence that's a vaccine reaction. What
0: if it's 10 people or 100 people?
1: There, at some point, that's what editorial judgment is Mm -hmm. for. So then you report saying, this one's not looking very hopeful here. Yeah. Right? So you don't just jump on... Every potential twist when people are freaked out. I saw like there's another one that just drove me nuts too. There's an article by Daily Beast saying four teachers have died in since schools opened.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, and then it was you know so many thousands of sort of retweets, and people are saying this is why we shouldn't open schools. I agree there's a debate on how and when to open schools, but if you read the article, none of the deaths had anything to do with the schools. Like one got infected at a church and one got infected outside of school long before the school had even opened. In fact, I think all four of them had died before the school said they'd even set foot. Uh, So this is a kind of fear-mongering that then I think creates an impulse in other parts of the media to try to push back against the fear-mongering. But if you do that without what I just said, which is the systemic thinking, distinguishing fear-mongering from the tsunami, right? The, um, it's the black swan versus the, what, the gray rhino, people call it. It's the structural stuff that is not frequent. But if and when it happens, it's a big deal. So you have to be able to distinguish those two and not constantly orient yourself to Trump or, you know, whatever the political polarization of the moment is and say, Wait a minute, what's going on here? And that uh, also understanding things like, you know, exponential growth when things are kind of, when they all come together, like early intervention is. Enormously important. And Your right piece for- was
0: sort of explaining why you were able to figure out why this was going to be a problem because you had a respiratory illness in China in what no one, you know, right, most Americans right. don't know what Wuhan is, but it's actually really a big city. It's going to travel quickly. We know what the transmission rate, you can sort of put all this together and and say, we're going to have a problem here. We're, we're not going to escape it. Um, and you sort of lay it out um, efficiently and, and it, it all makes sense. Um, it also seems and yeah, in retrospect, you go, oh, of course, we should have figured that out. But if you were a regular person, even a journalist who's assigned to cover this stuff, it seems like a lot.
1: So a the lot thing to ask. There was, it was, but it's not a lot to ask, right? Mm-hmm. This is like because I mean, what is like? Let me sort of put on like I'm an academic, not a traditional journalist, but I'm clearly in the journalism world. I'm writing for um, all these outlets, and I envision the role of journalism to be just that because the president can tweet himself. Tesla can put out their press releases, right? Everybody, like all the experts can go on social media and confuse us, right? We don't, like the point of journalism is to develop this, the polymath thing you're talking about, which is, and we have to, like, I understand, like, they're not really like always allowed to do this, but a way to say, we're going to give you something value added here that, you don't get just by reading, you know, whatever the president says himself or just looking at the experts' fees. We're going to synthesize stuff and give you stuff. So in the case of like that infamous The Recode article, the part that irritated me about that was there's a lot of things about the tech world that are sometimes millenarian and kind of... Um, worth occasionally ridiculing uh they have their own rituals and i'm kind of a geek myself so i kind of get that world but in this particular case they were for once reacting appropriately the tech industry had like it was one of the earlier ones to start canceling um conferences no handshakes, you know hand sanitizers and i think there are two things that went on there one of them is they have a strong interface to china so when wuhan shut down I think the tech world has that I have it too, because I do research about this and my research in Hong Kong is a sense of China that is more accurate, which is that it's not a cartoon villain, that it's an authoritarian but competent state. So and I also
0: and also very close. It seems far right. away, but it's a plane yeah, right away. Very
1: close, right? So because tech industry does a lot of work in there. So when it does happen uh, they understandably kind of said this must be a big deal. And the second thing is this kind of uh, this exponential thinking, I think, is more intuitive to a business that relies on network effects to grow, which is exponential thinking. In fact. To give you uh, one of the non-experts, uh, what's his name, Thomas Pueyo? Yes. Yes, he actually, like, people made I fun was of thinking his.
0: of you and him at the same time. Uh,
1: people were making fun of his, like, oh, gross guy writing this and I was reading, it, and I was like, this is great. He
0: wrote the flatten the curve chart that everyone, I know you yeah, also wrote it, but was, that's the one that took off. Yeah, no, but by the way, there were, there were other growth hackers writing about why this wasn't a problem, and they were, right, and they were talking, right. ca- and that's had- if you're, but if you're a regular consumer of this stuff, how do you know that time? Thomas Pao or Zeynep, um, who again none of whom are epidemiologists, are people you should listen to right. versus this oh, growth hacker who you shouldn't listen to.
1: This is uh, why I think media should redefine its role to be that intermediary, where they have like right now we're doing the wrong thing. Like I'm not putting my journalism hat. Like everybody's publishing more, and I'm kind of like publish less. People are publishing readable stuff and oversimplifying like my uh so i i have for the last year i had like a, a perch at the atlantic and i wrote like uh, a few things here and there and then in um june or july i went to my editor and said i'm going to write about ventilation and airborne transmission and He's like just resigned to my uh, <laughs> the, the madness at this point, right? Because I were supposed to write about tech and society, but fine, we're in the middle of a pandemic, we're adapting. And also, of course, you know, Atlantics had great coverage, so they kind of ha- are shifting. And then I came with like a 5,000 word article. And like, I don't like to anybody in the media world let me just say that you know you don't just put 5000 word articles by somebody without the right phd on what appears to be an obscure technical aspect of the um pandemic with pretty bold practical claims on what this means but we're like we're going to go with it right they let me have i and there was a there was almost no discussion of trying to shorten it because i was kind of like this needs to give people the right information and the practical consequences. And if I simplify it, I'm saying, trust me, that's not enough. I need to say, I'm gonna show my work and here's all of this, like I'm still not, and you still need to sort of decide to trust me, but I'm gonna show my work in detail because you deserve this. And my experiences, that article, the one on ventilation actually got read more widely by some articles I saw elsewhere, by the actual experts, Mm -hmm. who of course could write more detail than me, but were edited down to the thousand word format. So the old way of thinking in traditional media took the other experts who are like expert experts, they're the people whose papers I read, and had their op-eds be short and simple, And like mine got read more because what people want is that detail. And I, I, and I honestly, I would have been happier if those experts had been out there with their 5,000 word articles, it's more appropriate for them to do. They would do a better job. Uh, You know, we would help them with the editing. Like, that's not something that like, yay, that's great. Like, I'll just go back to writing about, you know, what should we do about social media and things like that. Uh, So there was a way in which that longer, deeper, complex articles have a place rather than what we're doing right now, which is overproducing article of the day. But like, it's not value added. It's not really adding value. And it's like, it's got the churn part of it perhaps, but it's not really doing the value added part. And then we end up in an environment in which people don't trust the media as much because, you know, this one said this and this one said that, and what, what sort of, And then big companies like Tesla are like, all right, we don't even need a PR department anymore because they're not really going to, the media is not mediating anymore. Whereas I think actually contra some of Silicon Valley that thinks we can just do with citizen journalism, we can't, we need deep investigations. We need somebody to mediate between like all the complex science and what we should do. I just want us to do it. And that's kind of why I've been writing all this.
0: I agree with you. Um, I was going to ask you about social media and algorithms and regulation, and that's going to be part two of our chat. Um, So I'm just going to let you off with one last question. You have a day job. You're an academic. You're writing for The Atlantic, as we discussed. Um, And now, like seemingly everyone else, you're going to have your own Substack newsletter. What's it called and why are you doing this?
1: Um, What's it called and why am I doing it? So it's called Insight. And the reason I'm doing it is a little, it's to try to see if I can have a space that's between like traditional outlets, like the Atlantic and the New York times that I sometimes write for and social media where it's become really hard to try to say anything without devolving into chaos and unnecessary, um, Sort of so is this a,
0: a notebook for you or a sandbox or something that you couldn't get into the
1: Times? Well, no, I don't think it's stuff I couldn't get into the Times. It's stuff that I don't necessarily think fits either, that they're not social media appropriate, but they're also not like an article where I say, here's what I think we should do with some uh, authority. It's more like I have some thoughts, but I want to have this as a conversation. I want people, and that's what I'm trying to figure out, like I want people to sort of have the discussion and I want to sort of have the ambiguity when I'm not sure and the complexity. And I want to be able to say, I don't like when you write an op-ed or when you write like for the New York Times or when you write like what's the nut graph as the saying goes, like where is your thesis? And sometimes like, I don't have a finalized thesis because it's a mess because that's reality and we're just facing lots of trade-offs. Like for example, I've been thinking about the um, school debate and it's one of those things like you can't write easily without either being uh, accused of trying to kill teachers Mm -hmm. or not caring about Students,
0: Kids and working parents. Right,
1: right. And one of the problems is that there is no good answer, right? Like over certainty sucks. There is no good answer, like, because there's just no way. There's nothing we can do that's not going to cause a problem. So the first step, and that's not something that the media environment, like, welcomes a lot, because you're going to say, you know what, there are no good choices. Yep. But the second part is we still got to act. So how do we make decisions like when we still got to act? And I thought the Substack stack uh, would be something that also helps me diversify so that like I'm a great believer in diversity of how you make a living. And in fact, when I became an academic, I was always this outspoken. I never like, I did not wait for tenure or this or that to just sort of start saying what I thought I would say because I always had this detachment from the job. Like, I love my job, right? I love being an academic. It's a great job. But even when I got my first job, I always thought if this doesn't work out, like I have technical skills, I can code, I can do math, I can do statistics. That's how I paid through my college. That's how I paid for my PhD. Uh, I'll just go, but I, I thought like, if academia doesn't work out, I will just go back and, you know, make get a, a little, job, get a job in a technical sense. In, uh, when I started writing, one of my first writing uh, places where I got paid was this writer's collective where I was paired with, I think, 10 other actual writers. And at the time, I wasn't like a writer like this in the sense that it wasn't one of my like things I did regularly. And I thought, this is great. Uh, I'll learn from them. And what happened was we were supposed to write so many pieces per month. And I ended up writing sometimes more than them, the real writers, because they were so concerned about their output and the perfectionism that went with it. Whereas i uh, like, if this doesn't work out, I'll just, you know, go back to being an academic. I was kind of like, I had this detachment. So having a sub stack is kind of like this experiment in which, all right, one more thing that where I sort of see like there's a subscription model there. And in, you know, the Atlantic, it's part subscription, part ads and part the Medici model, because they have now a patron. Uh, The New York Times is a legacy place. So it's kind of like Medici, Medici, I guess. So here's one more thing. Here's a new thing. And let's see how that works. And if it doesn't work,
0: I'm a New um, York Times subscriber. I've recently finally uh, decided to give Lorene Powell jobs my 40 or $50 a year so I could read your stuff on The Atlantic, and I will be paying you as well. Um, well I, I look I, forward to it.
1: Thank you. But, I mean, I'm I, we'll see. I mean, I'm not really looking to paywall a lot of things, so it's just going to be interesting as an experiment in more like an intentional community. We can create just because it's not on Twitter, which is not always great for having in-depth discussions. What?
0: I can't believe that. <laughs> Zainab to you, this is exactly what I thought I would get, um, which means I'm delighted. Thank you for your time. and uh, I do hope to uh, have that second part of that conversation at some point. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again to Zeynep. I really was looking forward to that one. It's kind of exactly how I thought it would go. Um, the big brain, I'm delighted to have her on. Thanks again. Thanks again to you guys for listening. Thanks again to Joel and Jelani for producing and editing the show. Thanks to our sponsors for bringing it to you for free. As you're aware, there's an election coming up very soon. So our next Recode Media podcast will come immediately after that election. I have a lot of anticipation about how that one will go. See you soon.